0: His string of chart-busting hits is long, and we know them all by heart. From his debut with the Commodores, through the smashing success of We Are The World, to his ongoing world tours, Lionel Richie has never stopped. Yes, Lionel, after 40-plus years, it's still very much happening. He has won an Oscar, five Grammys, and sold over 100 million records but as a child, he suffered from ADD and couldn't read or write music. At the height of his success, Lionel stepped away from the spotlight to take care of his father, but the rest of his world fell apart and he wasn't sure he'd ever make it back. Lionel has always sung about a topic that never goes out of style, love. The songs, he says, just come to him. The trick is being ready to receive them. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is masterclass with Lionel Richie.
1: I had a problem, according to the teacher. <clears throat> Lionel is too sensitive. I didn't quite know how to handle that one, because a man's supposed to be a man in a man's world. And I was too sensitive. Not realizing that... That was the cradle for everything that was going to happen in my life. I lucked out. Didn't plan on it, but I found a subject that will never, ever go out of style. Love. I don't care if you're the roughest, toughest, meanest guy in the whole world, or the softest wuss you've ever met in your life. Sooner or later, you're going to use these three corny words. I love you to somebody. or You're going to die for somebody to say that to you, which means it'll never go out of style. And believe me, in my 35 years of trying to write something else other than those three corny words, I can now report to you there is nothing to replace (laughs) those words. In this lifetime, there's only a couple of stories. I want you, I miss you, I need you forever. And All of them have one little thread of one word through the middle of it. Love. I don't know how I got involved with it, but that little sensitive—excuse me—too sensitive kid. <laughs> it worked for me. I didn't know I was a songwriter. I didn't know that that was going to be the case. I—I I was suffering from a thing back then. They just felt sorry for me, but it was called ADD. I, I couldn't read or write music. My grandmother tried desperately to um, teach me how to to read music. I actually would watch her play. She said, "Now watch me. Watch my execution." What she didn't realize was, I was watching her fingers. So she left the room, and when she came back, she said, now let's play it. And I played the piece from beginning to end. And she said, you're not reading. And I said, I am reading. Why do you think I'm not reading? She said, I didn't turn the page. When I signed with Motown, I called it Motown University. Just imagine, the master instructors of life were there and you study how they're creating, you realize, where's the paper that Marvin's reading from? No, no, Lionel, he's making it up as he goes along. And to watch Stevie record was just, well, can he see? I kept thinking, he, this guy can see. there possible He's just faking it. And he realized, nope, he can't see. And yet, you know, he's just writing stuff out of the clouds. Today in rap, they call that freestyle. But back then he was freestyling with a melody and a lyric at the same time. That was my go button, if you will. Once I figured out that you don't have to be able to write it down to be a great songwriter. I was born on a university campus, Tuskegee University, or at that time it was called Tuskegee Institute. We used to call Tuskegee the bubble. What went on outside of the bubble and what went on inside of the bubble, two different worlds. Segregation was outside of the bubble. Uh, The Klan. Inside the city limits of Tuskegee was another world. There were doctors, lawyers, PhDs, professors, pilots. Some of the greatest minds in America were now on these little hubs called black university, uh, black campuses. Morehouse College, Martin Luther King came from there. Howard University, Tuskegee. All of these schools, They were basically the mecca for all of this great power, mental power, because there's no place else for them to go. And so I grew up on a campus where there was nothing unusual about having a doctor, a lawyer, whatever the case may be, black. But of course now, 35 miles away in Montgomery, Alabama, you couldn't vote. You couldn't walk down the street after dark. One time, I was about 9, 10 years old, we were in Montgomery, Alabama, and I didn't realize it, but I was drinking from a white water fountain. And I didn't see the sign that said white. And I remember when I finished drinking, these four white guys came up and started harassing my dad. And I kept thinking, these guys are in big trouble because my dad's going to whip their ass in about five more minutes. you know. And I noticed dad didn't say a word. Dad said, get in the car. And I confronted my dad one day and I said, Dad, man, I can't believe you just backed down. He said, what are you talking about? I said, that that day when those guys came, you know, why did you let them talk to you like that? And he said, I had a choice that day, son. I had a choice of either being your father, in other words, to live, or to stand up and be a man that day. I chose to be your father and I got in the car and I left. That was a defining moment in my life when I realized it's much more serious than I thought. Cynthia Diane Wesley was one of the four black girls killed in the bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. We got to know each other very well. She would come from Birmingham down to Tuskegee. After the bombing, my mom and dad, they told me she had moved away. And it wasn't until I was probably a senior in high school that they were doing a report on the bombing and they called off the name. Cynthia Diane Wesley, I was devastated. I realized that there's no play thing. This thing called segregation, this thing called racism. Pretty serious, huh? Yeah, pretty serious. And you start asking questions now. And I remember one of the uh, most serious questions I've asked my mom and dad ever. I walked into a room one day and I said, Mom, Dad, whose, whose side is God on? Because we were integrating a church in Tuskegee And the black people were trying to walk into the white church and the white parishioners said, you can't come in. And the police came, and the dogs came, and I kept thinking, well, wait a minute now. If they're protecting God's house, we want to be in God's house, whose side is he on? Is it white or black? Because obviously right now, the state troopers, the military, the police downtown, the dogs are all on the white guy's side. And so it didn't make any sense to me. So I, I stayed in, in denial for another couple of years before I finally realized, once you got outside the bubble, you started to realize what's going on. And the Commodores was that ticket out of town. That Commodore experience really gave me an opportunity to be away from mom and dad explaining what's going on without that shelter that kind of woke me up to the whole idea of what's happening in the world. Pop radio was country music. On the campus of the university, there's R&B. In the community, there was gospel music. And in my family home, my grandmother was a classical pianist. She was an instructor. So Bach, Beethoven, you name it. You know, I was just in this melting pot of sounds and music. It was just unbelievable that it had all kind of melted inside of me. I was struggling for quite a while because I was a big musical fan. I just couldn't read it properly. I could get on the piano and play anything I wanted to play. I just couldn't weed it off of the notes. It wasn't until my college years that I realized that there might be something there in terms of, if not the musical side, just the the poetic side, just the writing of the lyrics. I went on the campus uh, um, 1967. I was a freshman on the campus of Tuskegee. I was too short to play basketball, too small to play football too slow to run track, hated baseball. One day, I well, ran into Thomas McClure, the guitar player for the, the Commodores, and he did not know anything about me except, I heard you brought your horn to school. And I didn't tell him I brought my horn to school to learn how to play it, but that's just a minor detail I left out. Because back then, all you had to do was just play dun 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 dun, dun, dun. I could do that all day long, that's, a, that's an easy one. So we actually put this together where the band did a talent show. And we were up against the senior group called the Jays. And what we didn't realize was the freshman talent show was really a chance for the upperclassmen to come and laugh at the, it was the gong show for the freshmen, but we didn't know that. And we killed it. We blew the campus away. So we put this band together called the Commodores. And I walked out on stage and some girls screamed in the audience. Now, I didn't know what that really meant, but I think that set off something inside of me that said, whatever this is, I'm staying with this for a minute. And I found out that the five other guys in the Commodores felt the same way. Benny Ashburn was our manager. Suzanne DePass uh, called up on the phone one day and said, Uncle Benny, I have a new job. My job is I'm, the, I'm taking out a new group called the Jackson Five across America and I'm looking for the opening act. And Benny said, they're underneath my table in my apartment right now, which is true. We slept on everything in this single bedroom apartment. So it was the first time I met Barry Gordy, and we were in the room upstairs. At that time, it was called Twilight, but it was just a big empty room because they hadn't built the studio yet. And so, uh, of course, uh, Suzanne walked in. We did the uh, couple of songs. She said, you have the gig, and the rest of it's uh, history. We did two and a half years touring with the Jackson 5 before we ever got an actual break in a studio. Motown Studios, every song I ever recorded with the Commodores was in that studio. I was a kid, man, fascinated to walk in those doors, and every Martian I had ever heard about in life was walking down the hall in their natural habitat. I mean, you know, there's Marvin Gaye. There's Smokey Robinson. There's Norman Whitfield, who wrote My Girl, Cloud Nine, you name it there they are. Little Stevie Wonder down the hall was around my age, and so I could identify with him in five minutes because that's my guy. That's my generation. That's what's really happening. There's something wonderful about being um, young and completely naive. As far as we were concerned, we had made it. When you walk in the doors of Motown, when somebody says, yes, we like the group, we just knew that the hit records were coming. It was just an arrogance about our our youth, that, of course, well, this is the beginning, guys. We're going to kill it now. We're going to wear it out, you know, and not having a clue that it's going to be five or six years later that it was actually going to pop. At that time, the Temptations, the Supremes, the Miracles, everybody everybody was here, and we thought we were at the front of the line being the next group, and we were about as far back as you can get. (laughs) But again, what made it so wonderful is we didn't know that. All we knew was that uh, we're now in the, in the doors of Motown, walking down the halls, and, hey, you know, we're going to be okay. I think the greatest words a child can say in life to a parent is, I told you so. My dad, he was a hard-ass. Everything was, Mr., I'm talking to you. Can you hear me, sir? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I hear you. Look at me when you say... It was like, sir, don't look down. Look, look up at me. Oh, oh God. Dad was, was just arrogant smart rough did not take any mess from anybody just imagine me walking in the door with an afro to hear and announcing to my folks that we are the commodores we're the black Beatles, and we're going to take over the world and the great words of my father i was going to be a hoodlum thug dope dealer dope addict three years later i brought home a million dollar check and He changed his tune it was was good. Thank you. I was a daydreamer in, in school. Mr. Ritchie, would you like to join the rest of the class? That's what I heard most of my growing up. Not realizing that where I was on the other side was that place where you go to get the songs. Now, remember, I grew up on a university campus where there must be a logical reason why you know what you know. Why? You studied it. You want to be in medicine? You studied it. You want to be a uh, lawyer? You, s- you studied to be a lawyer. Now, to stand there with someone and say, I hear voices. You hear this song right here? Can you hear that song? And people are going, no. Ooh. Then I'll keep my mouth closed. So for the longest time, I didn't trust myself to hear what I was hearing. And then, thank God, We went to Motown and I ran into a whole group of people walking around going, hear that song? (laughs) And then I watched them trust themselves to say whatever was on their minds. It was just magical to me. And from there, I trusted myself a little bit more to open up each time to where I would let more in. But it was frightening at the beginning. It was frightening to, to trust my, I'm gonna write something down and it may sound stupid, You know, when people say, what do you think about when you write? Nothing. Don't think. And try to just, for God's sakes, don't try to be a hit record. I can't plan it. I don't know what it's going to be. It it, it may look impressive, but the answer that I'm going to give you is, I have no blessed idea what I'm going to write next. I, I thought I had it figured out at one point, and then it became a joke with me. It's the happiest day of my life. I am feeling so good about life, I run in to write the happiest song of my life. I'll write the saddest song of my life. Here's the saddest day of my life. I am going in now to write Pour My Heart Out on a record. i write all night long. <laughs> then the answer came to me. Just sit down, put your hands on the keyboard, and it comes through you. Just don't think. There's no formula. There's no, you you just have to be available and and receive. Sounds weird, but it's what I do. When I signed with Motown, I was not the lead singer. Clyde, the drummer, was the lead singer. I was the horn holder slash could sing kind of, but didn't know that I was a singer until I started singing the songs I wrote. And slowly, one song at a time, oh, yeah, well, Lionel, do you have any more of those? Uh, Yeah, I got another one. Another one. And by the third song, okay, I think I know what I'm what i doing here. I only knew how to be in a band. I only knew how to be covered by a group of guys. If you're discouraged about something, you got five other guys that'll come in and cheer you up. Every day, one guy would quit from the Commodores, and five of the guys were talking back into it. And then Kenny Rogers called me on the phone and said, would you write me a song? And I wrote Lady. And then from there, Endless Love. I had gotten used to being called Commodore. I didn't have a name. But after Kenny Rogers and Endless Love, I became this guy named Lionel Richie. And so the interviews got a little bit more direct. Lionel, tell us about the day you started the Commodores. Well, I didn't, I didn't start the Commodores. I mean, The guys we put together you know you start fumbling around or they'd be asking the guys very pointed questions i saw i walk in and all the cameras now are going to me um then the reviews started coming finally halfway through the show lionel richie sits at the piano and now plays his hit record well try to go back to a group meeting after that and i totally understood so I was trying to pretend like it wasn't happening but it was happening and then finally you get the ultimate review which I call the stab in the heart which is what's a guy like Lionel Richie doing in a funk band like the Commodores that was not good that was the end of the fantasy the guys were mortally wounded they came to me and said would you like to do a solo record it didn't mean I wanted to go solo it just meant a solo record truly came out course they said go right back in and do the next album all night long came out hello forget about it I mean it was leaving the Commodores you know it was very painful I must tell you because every imaginable experience in my life not only as a musician as a writer but as a man I experienced with those crazy guys I didn't know anything about the civil rights struggle until I started hanging with guys from Mississippi and in Florida and they started telling me their life stories and I started going, so wow. And then we started encountering uh, incidents on the road where we were stopped as a band and, you know, that's the first time I was ever called nigga was Commodores. and I remember thinking, wow, I'm in the civil rights struggle. And so just imagine I'm going to leave the family that I, how I became me. It was very tough and I didn't quite know how to position myself because They kept asking for more, 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 the industry, and I kept trying to give it to them. But at the same time, I was losing the family behind me. Tough, very tough. I'm driving down in LA one night. I came off of the freeway on the wrong street, and this guy came up and he taps on the glass. Homeless guy, and I'm thinking to myself, And I rolled the window down about halfway. He said, I thought that was you, man. I was with you in DC. I saw you in DC, man. I just want to tell you, God bless you, Lionel. He said, keep up the good work. I'm pulling for you. We're all proud of you. Step back away from the car. I rolled the window back up and started crying. How bad can the day be? And so if he's pulling for me, then it's an opportunity for me to go back and give something back to the society that's there. You know, that was God talking that day. Harry Belafonte called me on the phone and said, we're having a problem here. We have the whole world trying to save people from hunger and there are no black people saving black people from hunger. I need you to um, organize something. So that night I happened to be talking to Quincy and quincy said well i'm talking to michael why don't you and michael get together and let's do something i I said well because he knows harry very well and it's all family so we got together and okay and i got with michael and we said Well i can get stevie we can call stevie you know we'll do this so i'm going over to michael's house fighting with the snake the monkey the dog ricky and the parakeet we had to go right way of the world Quincy walks in the door and says, I need the song now. And uh, a day later, you know, we had the bones for We Are the World. We show up at the studio and do the demo. Back then, we didn't have, you couldn't email it. You had to put it on a cassette and send it to people. So we have people agreeing to be involved with a song they haven't heard yet. And, of course, what it did do was beyond our wildest imagination. I mean, we became a country unto itself. We became the world. I remember Michael calling me on the phone and saying, Lionel, turn on the TV. They showed at that time all of the countries singing. It humbled us because we had no idea. If we were trying to just raise a couple of million between, a million between us, we'll do it, we'll donate. It. it became a movement unto itself. It was one of the most rewarding uh, experiences of my career, where actually all of this talent and ego and glitz and glamour actually saved somebody's life. It was
0: just amazing. With We Are the World, Lionel's success reached the stratosphere. Yet soon after, devastating events almost brought it all crashing down. Lionel's father developed a debilitating illness And Lionel himself was diagnosed with a throat condition that almost ended his singing career. So he decided to take some time off. And he didn't know when or if he would ever be back.
1: My father came to me one day and said, eh, not doing too well. Would you come go to the doctor with me? Hmm. Now, my father, Mr. Hard as Nails, I've never seen him sick a day in his life. If he said that to me, serious time. So my father was dying and um, he said uh, I just want to let you know now you're in charge. And I said what does that mean? He said you're in charge. I'm not going to make any more decisions unless I check with you. You're not going to make any more decisions until you check with me. Are you kidding me? And he was dead serious. From that point on I saw him give the power over to me. And it frightened me. What was supposed to be a year, I'll take a six months, a year off, became three years. Uh, from the time of his illness to his death was three and a half years, three years. Uh, during that period of time, everything fell apart. You know, the marriage fell apart, the dad fell apart. The whole fantasia of the next record, the next record, the next record became, let me pay attention to dad. Well, this was my test. Because if I ever had a problem as a kid, you take your problems to your parents or your father or your mother. And all of a sudden, I had just lost that guy, my point man, my wing guy. And so I really had to find that inner strength, if you will, to pull myself out of that because that was a very dark moment. And on top of all that, if that's not the one-two punch, the third punch was I got to have throat surgery. I had a polyp at that particular time there was no cure for it. You're at the mercy of this thing. And, and you know, someone will ask you the question, well, in case you can't sing anymore, you can always find something else to do. And I go, like what? <laughs> what would you like? What would you suggest? There was a period when I just thought I had lost my identity, because that's what it really is. I mean, you know, from 19 years old, 20 years old, to, to 45, I went from Commodore to... Mr. Ritchie, so I don't know anybody else to be. Taking those three years off, it was definitely something I needed. It was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because all of my other friends riding that rocket crashed. Everyone that was experiencing their ride to success somewhere down the line crashed. And the fact that I just stopped. Yes, I was in my funk. Yes, I was in my own little world of misery and depression, it was still, it saved me from the big crash. Success is lethal, especially in our business. You like girls, you get all the girls. You like money, you get all the money. You like dope, you like alcohol, you get it all. Now the answer is, can you survive it? Because now that you have it all, it could kill you. Great words of my dad, You know, I keep quoting him every once in a while, but, you know, great fighters are not determined by how many punches they can throw. It's how many punches they can take. And uh, when you get knocked down, get up. Get up. Get up. I got up. There's a word I try to practice in my life called balance. And what I use as my equilibrium is my kids. They treat me like dad. They don't treat me like Lionel Richie. I just want them to lie to me one time and say, man, you're the greatest. Having kids changed me tremendously because I realized how lucky I was to have a mom and dad. And I started meeting a lot of friends in the business. They didn't know their dads. They only had moms. And some didn't have moms or dads. And I didn't realize how blessed I was until I started listening to their stories and then I started looking at my kids and said, well, I've got to be this example for these kids. I thought I wasn't listening to my mom and dad all those years. I thought it was just la, 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 la. And I kept saying, yeah, 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 as all kids do, but I never thought any of it stuck until I had a kid. And Nicole walks in trying to do the same thing to me, what I did to my mom and dad. And I promised myself when I had kids, I would never put them through what my mom and dad put me through. And I found myself saying the exact same words with the exact gesture, with the finger pointing. And I remember Nicole came to me one day and she said, Dad, why do you think I'm always lying? And I said, because, Nicole, it's the same lie I told my mom and dad. I, I now know why my father caught us exactly. They knew where we were. We didn't have phones back then, but dad knew exactly where we were hiding out after school. How did they catch us? It's the same place they went. (laughs) That's where it's supposed to be. You know, I suck at relationships. I mean, I, I think it's terrible because I don't get to spend the quality of time. Relationships, I think in our business is probably the toughest thing ever. It looks easy when you get into it, but then maintaining a quality relationship with your friends, with your family, with your kids, even your business associates, it's very very difficult. Uh, I've got great friends from college. I have great friends from my life growing up, but I never spend enough time with them. My two marriages, the same. When you are known around the world you have to go around the world, you know, and your anniversaries are gonna be on the road and your birthdays are gonna be on the road and and you're sharing yourself with your family who shares you with the world. And so it took me about 45 years, 50 years, to come to grips with the fact that I am me and I'm happy to be me in all of its conflict, and all of its neuroses and garbage. And if I were logical, if I were, my math grades were amazing, then I'd be somebody else. But because I am this conflicted person, how I describe myself is I'm an egotistical maniac with an inferiority complex, you know, I'm all of that. But I had to just get to the point one day when I said, it's okay, man, I I like you. And once I made that decision, I started enjoying my life a lot more.
0: Lionel is a master. After 11 hit albums, over 100 million records sold, and so many awards, Love still hasn't gone out of style. He says he remains open and waiting for that next song to come.
1: I'm a big kid. I'm a big, giant kid and I don't want to know what adults know because adults practice on being clear on what they've already learned, not learning. The day you say, man, I'm the best, it's over because you stop trying. You know, you, you've got to stay hungry. it has got to be something in front of you that makes you want to wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to try something else. I've got something, I've got an idea about something, you know. It's never done. You never made it, you never make it. you know, it's called, give me one more, Give give me just one more, I got one more idea. Just give me one more. I've got something planned for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Years ago, I happened to be talking to George Burns and we were good friends. And I said, George, I'm waiting for you to retire so I can retire. And he said, stay booked, kid, stay booked.
0: I'm Oprah Winfrey and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.